How does the Ukraine war call back World War II? Let me count the ways. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. The headline that caught my eye today was, quote, mired in Ukraine, Putin blames West. And it actually had this on my radar because yesterday was what we used to call in my house VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, which was is May 8th here, but it's May 9th in Eastern Europe because it happened in the 11th hour, quite literally. And so it was May 9th in these other places. So they they hold big celebrations there. It's a big deal there. And Putin was going to make a speech. And I was curious to know what he was saying. There was some hype about it. Our media was already ginning it up to make it feel like he was going to say something stupid or lie or whatever. So they were ready for whatever he had to say. But I have found with these guys from other countries, I don't know what it is, maybe maybe in reaction to having so many years of media that was controlled by the government, their people are actually more skeptical, more savvy, and their stories need to make more sense than ours. I get embarrassed by our so-called statesmen and their ridiculous nonsense. These other people in other countries often make a little more sense. I don't know why. I haven't cracked the code on that yet, but I'm always interested in actually reading their words. So before I get into what that article said, and the article actually wasn't really very damning. I mean, there wasn't much there outside of what he actually said, except for a few lies, which I will tell you. But I ended up just going and reading his speech, the speech Putin gave yesterday. I actually, after yesterday, I read some quotes from the Wall Street Journal. I was like, you know what? I don't need to read quotes from other journalists. Let's just have a conversation about their ideas. But this is an actual speech. So it probably makes sense to read the quotes. Putin said, and this isn't a direct quote, but he he explained, kind of led off by explaining, he starts talking about the great heroes of World War II and their fight against Nazis and all of that. And it's actually, people don't realize the sacrifices that Russia made. I understand that he had, that Stalin had a pact with Hitler up front, and we can get into, it would be a, a lifetime's worth of deep dives to get into peel every layer of the onion about World War II. But just to have a sense of how much more of a poignant memory it is probably for Russia and some of the other countries than it is for us. And you would always think like the UK made all those sacrifices. Winston Churchill made all those speeches about the great tremendous sacrifices and trench warfare and all that kind of stuff. Well, that was World War One, But um, if you look at the numbers, it's really quite shocking. The U.S. and the U.K. each lost. I mean, this is almost impossible to believe. I put the, the source in the show notes, but only half a million people in each in of civilians and military. I guess I can understand us because we weren't there, but the UK also. Then China lost 20 million, 4 million of which were soldiers. The Dutch East Indies, I'm just t- going to tell you the people other than the UK and the US, which did not hit a million. How, what countries lost more than a million people? Dutch East Indies was 4 million. Germany was 9 million. 6 million were soldiers. 
when you think of concentration camps, you think of them as in Germany, but a lot of them were not in Germany. The majority of the people who died in concentration camps were not in Germany, if I understand correctly. So that would explain those numbers. India lost two and a half million. Japan lost three, two of which were soldiers. Poland lost 5.6 million. I'll tell you later in the show how Poland comes into this story today. But the USSR in World War II lost 24 million people. 10 million were soldiers, 14 million were civilians. I mean, that for sure, I mean, just eyeballing it, I guess it's not more than everybody else combined if you include China, but China had that. It was really in it with Japan. But that's just a staggering number, especially when you compare it with the UK, with whom they were, I guess, standing shoulder to shoulder the UK having lost so many fewer. So this is a really poignant memory, uh, I think, in a different way from how we we think about it. And they make a big deal of it over there. So Putin was definitely acknowledging all of that. But then, uh, you know, a good portion of the speech was bringing in Ukraine. And he is, in fact, as as she says in that article from the Wall Street Journal, blaming the West, but not without... A logic to it, which if you've heard my work on Ukraine before, you know, I feel like he was they were absolutely provoked. There were atrocities in the Donbass for eight years. Thousands of people were killed, more than 10,000, I think 14,000 people were killed. And it was all a result of a coup enacted by the U.S. in 2014. So I've done a lot of work on that. Um, but the Russian people, I think, for the most part, understand that, and they are very sympathetic to the Russophone people in eastern Russia that Putin is defending right now. So he pointed out also that the reason that they decided he decided this limited military action in Ukraine. So he's explaining in this that World War II was the defense of Russia, just like this Ukraine war, which is a little bit like. You know, you have to kind of think it through a little bit, but he does make an argument and I think you can you can definitely follow it. And he says that Russia asked as recently as December for a security guarantee for mutual benefit for all nations to remain at peace. And NATO denied it, which Putin says demonstrates that that's not really what they want. And I think he's right about that. And then this is a quote from the speech, another punitive operation on Donbass, an invasion of our historic lands, including Crimea, was openly in the making. Kiev declared that it could attain nuclear weapons and the NATO bloc launched an active military buildup on the territories adjacent to us. So if NATO was really preparing to invade Crimea or if Ukraine, quote, was preparing to invade Crimea and had a lot of NATO weapons and stuff on their base, that really would have been World War III. And I think they know that that's what what was going to be the perception by Russia. They were deliberately trying to provoke this response from Russia. And I feel like... They may be over there doing that just because provoking that because it would accelerate their ability to kind of turn at least the Western Ukraine into a giant NATO base. And by making it look like Russian aggression, they get us to spend all this money, billions and billions of dollars over there. 
which goes hand in hand with what I always thought the real purpose of the first Trump impeachment was, was to get people on the left to just knee jerk want to send money to Ukraine. That was what it was about. Trump wasn't sending money to Ukraine. And that was what he was impeached for, basically. Uh, But even if Putin was being set up and surely he knew he was being set up, he had to go for it. There was no way he could get around it. It kind of reminds me of what's happening right now with people being driven to the brink of despair with what's happening in their schools, like parents who would never normally get super active and they know they're being goaded into it, that things are getting so outrageous that it's trying to piss them off. But it is pissing them off and they have to react to it. There's no choice. They're painted into a corner. So I feel like that is what happened there. And uh, he goes on to explain there's military infrastructure being built up in Ukraine. There were hundreds of foreign advisors in the country. I know that was nothing new. And there was cutting edge military equipment from NATO being built up there. So all those things do point to a kind of a provocation that he could not resist, even if he saw it coming. And he says, and this is very tricky, he says, Russia launched a preemptive strike at that aggression. It was a forced, timely, and the only correct decision, a decision by a sovereign, strong, and independent country. So obviously he's doing some flexing, which is his thing. Um, but, But let's think about this, what he said. Russia launched a preemptive strike at the aggression. That's almost an oxymoron. And because a preemptive strike means it's before the aggression started, right? And that's where it starts getting for me that I'm very black and white. And so I don't, I never liked the word preemptive. Preemptive strike to me is aggression. If it's preemptive, it's preempting the aggression. So it is the aggression. And we use that all the time to justify our aggression. But there has to be a point at which aggression is in the offing. So let's take like the Chris Rock, Will Smith thing. Could Chris Rock, when he saw Will Smith walking up those stairs, breaking all the security protocols, have just quickly, you know, thrown a right punch at Will Smith's face and be, and that would have been considered defensive? I would say yes. But what if he ran down and punched Will Smith in the face as he was getting out of his seat? I would say probably not unless he really knew what Will Smith was thinking. So I feel like what was happening in Ukraine, it was very clear what they were up to and that it it was aggression. And there has to be a point at which it's too late. If they actually started putting missiles in there, and that was part of the thing that Putin was talking about, missiles that were coming to those former Warsaw Pact countries, is that aggression? And I would say, I would say yes. And I know some people, libertarians especially, will say, like, I'm not for a war. I can't justify what Russia is doing here. And I would say that's more of a pacifist position. That's not the position of a non-aggression principle. The non-aggression principle is you're not allowed to initiate aggression. Pacifism is you can't even defend yourself if aggression is initiated against you. And in this case, I would say, yes, you have to be kind of judge and jury and say, is this, does this constitute aggression? And I would say there is an interpretation that would say that, and I would probably agree with it. Now, I'm not great at those nuances. I noticed that in law school. I'm much better in math. Like law school, people would, a lot of people who were good at it would understand the reasoning of a great jurist 
And I would have a hard time. I'm like, yeah, of course you should cut the baby in two. (laughs) I didn't understand it at all. So it's a little hard for me. But I but in this case, I certainly it seems self-evident to me. Sometimes you have to just go with what the logic is. But of course, think about it, you know, get your facts and figure it out for yourself. But I understand the point he is making. And I do agree with it. I do think that that if they were actively planning to invade Crimea, that would have had to be a provocation for World War III because Putin could not give up Crimea. It's there. It's a place where his fleet lives. It's historically Russian. And if NATO backed Ukraine in invading Crimea, it would have been just an all-out European war. And I'm sure it would have spread, of course, the U.S. and China. World War in the offing. So he has another line in here that strikes a nerve with me. He says, the United States began claiming their exceptionalism, particularly after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I think when Americans hear American exceptionalism, they think what it means is American extraordinariness. But it doesn't mean that. It means exception to the rule of nations, to the law of nations, to the law of the sovereignty of nations specifically. So American exceptionalism means that you can carve out an exception to these international laws, to the law of nations, Vattel's Law of Nations, which was one of the primary documents used by our founders in crafting the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution is you have to recognize other people's sovereignty. And because we violate sovereignty all the time, we had to say that we were an exception to that rule, but that we expect to be respected, our sovereignty to be respected. But because we're the big man on campus, we're allowed to throw people around like that. And we could only get away with that when there wasn't another big man on campus. So it did happen after the fall of the Soviet Union that we started using that that word and it's out of vogue now, but it was a it was the rallying cry for a long time. Um, and then uh, the last sentence I thought was worthwhile from the speech from Putin was, we bow our heads to the memory of the Odessa martyrs who were burned alive in the House of Trade Unions in May 2014. They were, and it wasn't like they lit the place on fire. They burned it to hide their crimes. If you see the picture of that, you can see inside. It's so atrocious. Please never look at it. But if you were to look at it, you would see that the people were burned in places where the building wasn't burned. It was, it's horrible. I still have images in my mind. It's really awful. And that was at the hands of the neo-Nazis. He says, to the memory of the old people, women and children of Donbass who were killed in atrocious and barbaric shelling by neo-Nazis, we bow our heads to our fighting comrades who died a brave death in the righteous battle for Russia. So he is literally counting Donbass as Russia. And I can understand why? Because if NATO took over Donbass and put missiles in there, like they'd be hitting Moscow. So I get what he's saying. So what the article in the Wall Street Journal tries to, it, it really doesn't have much of a leg to stand on. I mean, I could have done a better job arguing against <laughs> Putin's speech than this chick did. But it, she, there were just a couple of things I wanted to highlight from that. She says, since the start of the war, Moscow has falsely claimed that the government in Kiev is run by Nazis. Now, he did not. Putin didn't say that in the speech, for sure not. And I would say she says it's falsely claimed the government in Kiev is run by Nazis. The government in Kiev is not run by Nazis. 
the government of Kiev runs Nazis. <laughs> they have Nazis out there doing their dirty work, and we run the government of Kiev. So those Nazis are the henchmen which were created. Victoria Newland identified Tiny Book, who is one of the right sector, the guys from these right wing movements, far right, like Nazi stuff that called these guys into existence to execute this coup. Uh, but Putin didn't say that. He just, he was saying that, he said, there's every indication that a clash with neo-Nazis and Banderites, who was a Ukrainian Nazi, backed by the United States and their minions was unavoidable. So he says the Nazis were backed by the United States. Women and children of Donbass were killed in atrocious and barbaric shelling by neo-Nazis. Yes, so we do see the the Nazi theme, but he doesn't mischaracterize it as if, which I hate it when people are doing this these days, saying that the Kiev government uh, is run by Nazis. It's the exact opposite. They're just using the Nazis, exploiting them. I mean, not like an exploiting, like uh, don't exploit. Not, I mean, like they're just taking this, um, whatever you want to call ultra-nationalist or um, xenophobic or I don't know, Russophobic sentiment and turning it against other Ukrainians who just who speak Russian as a first language. That's really all they're doing is that they just couldn't get other Ukrainians to fight in that way. So uh, the article even stipulates the Wall Street Journal article that most Russians agree with Putin and support the war. It acknowledges that the West wouldn't even consider a, mu uh, a mutual security agreement. Um, they wouldn't consider keeping Ukraine out of NATO, supposedly on a matter of principle. And the position, I feel like, not only in this article, but generally by our Secretary of State and everything else, is it's outrageous for anyone to ask anything of us, for anyone to expect us to give them any security guarantees whatsoever, because we would never be aggressive, we would never be selfish, we would never violate other people's rights and sovereignty, even though that's the very premise that a lot of this stuff is built upon, is that we don't need to respect other people's sovereignty. So I find that... These assumptions rest largely on the fact that the U.S. are good actors. We don't need to follow rules because we can be trusted. And it's an insult to have to be held to a higher standard or as high a standard as other people. Now, there are other articles in the journal that went to some of these tangential issues, including the nuclear genie is out of the bottle. The EU energy crisis is um, would follow from a Russian oil embargo and blood red paint thrown on a Russian ambassador. Let's hit some of these articles one by one. So Gerald Seib in the Wall Street Journal says Putin uncorks the nuclear genies, and he identifies three of them. He says the risk of nuclear war itself is now on the table. And if Putin gets desperate enough, we may see that. He says the return of nuclear blackmail, where Putin is teaching China how to get its way by using its nuclear arsenal to threaten other countries. And Putin is demonstrating that having nukes is a great way to get your way. So he's giving non-nuclear powers incentive to want to go nuclear. And it's just funny because you definitely don't need to tell people what nukes are for. Nukes are weapons of deterrent. Actually, Tesla was 
fantasized about or his number one wish was to make a weapon so powerful and give it to absolutely everyone that it would end war. And if you read the report from Iron Mountain, that's what nukes are for. They're just the ultimate deterrent because nobody would use them. You almost wonder, some people think nuclear weapons aren't even a real thing. Nuclear powers, but nuclear weapons are not. I, I don't know. I don't know because if you like, I think you can get like a pretty big mushroom cloud just from like that effect of oxygen getting sucked out of the city if enough conventional bombs are thrown on them. But the idea that people don't understand nukes as a deterrent and the fact that using them as a deterrent, using them as uh, he's going to call it blackmail, incentives, threats, whatever. But in the case of Russia, in my opinion, it it is actually defensive. But nukes aren't just a defensive weapon, aren't just a deterrent to war. They are also the thing that drove all of the fear during the Cold War. And of course, Saib's trying to bring that back. His last paragraph is, how does the West calibrate the struggle so Putin is defeated, thereby showing that nuclear blackmail doesn't work, but to do so without humiliating him so much that he pulls the nuclear trigger? That's why the period ahead is so dangerous. And what he's doing is is trying to get us behind conventional war. He's trying to get us behind putting more money in there. Uh, it's There's a, just a lot of fear mongering going on. And there's also the economic impact around the world of the EU wanting the Eastern European countries to ban oil from Russia. Now, there's a problem there because... They have a stable supply of oil. They're in Eastern Europe, and they don't want to go for it. And I've actually wondered if all the things that are happening these days from lockdown to Ukraine to climate change are really based on the fact that the West cannot fully control the oil. The oil is more under Eurasia, and the stronger China gets, the stronger Russia gets, the stronger their alliance gets, and um, the less control we have over the Middle East, or if the Middle East's oil reserves are declining while Central Asia's is rising, you're going to not have that kind of control. And if we can't control all the oil like we have tried to in the past, then maybe the plan is to just split the the world in two, let them have an oil-based hemisphere, and we will try to have a, a non-oil-based domain hegemony. Now, they would be a lot more powerful, so I don't know if that's going to work, but it seems like everything is coming together to try to reduce our use of fossil fuels from lockdown to this Ukraine embargoes and sanctions to climate change. And I have to think it's geopolitical, at least as much as anything else. And then the last thing was that protesters, quote, in Poland, threw red paint that looked like blood on the Russian ambassador there who was celebrating May 9th. Now, I can understand if they were saying that because they hated the communist rule for 50 years following World War II. But it's clearly, I mean, it was even in the article, it said they were Ukrainians. And I would say American motivated Ukrainians, but I hate that kind of stuff. It's very, I don't know. I I just, I don't like the incivility of it, but if it were, if I were super pissed about something, I probably couldn't bring myself to do something like that. But there's some people who are um, beneath contempt and I wouldn't object to that, but this guy, it didn't, it seemed a little, uh, I didn't admire it. Let's just say. So uh, that's a lot of stuff. 
I try to talk as fast as I can. I'm not sure that's the best way to approach it. Then maybe I'll just do a little bit less next time. Anyway, but I do always like to end the show and start my day on a positive note. As I told you yesterday, it's a little piece of chocolate. So I just was thinking about uh, my ability to judge or how some people are really good at judgment. I'm pretty good at discernment, but that's not the same. But the older I get, the more I realize that I am competent to inform my conscience and make good decisions and determinations, at least for myself. And I used to just ask a lot of people for advice or, you know, wanted to gather a lot of opinions. But I began to realize over the years that I don't actually always need someone else's advice or opinions to sort through things that I've developed the ability to kind of do that myself and am better off trusting my own instincts whether it's in my own life or in the news, what's right and wrong in the news, my truth dar there. So I do think it's a good exercise to take the time to figure things out and also to learn how to trust yourself and to earn your own trust. So I am Monica Perez. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media or share it with someone you think would also enjoy it. If you would like to... And get these shows commercial free as well as monthly deep dives I do with Drive Time News Blast host Brad Binkley. Join us at rockfin.com slash propaganda report. Uh, these deep dives will drop there first. So if 5 a.m. Eastern is not early enough for you, join Rockfin and you can get the early release of this show. And you can always tweet at me at Monica Perez Show.